Welcome to The Rundown with your host, Stephen Lippold. This is a podcast that is simply about all the things I care about, mostly business, investing, and personal development, sprinkling some news and other topical subjects to get you The Rundown. Thank you so much for listening. Here we go. Welcome to episode one of The Rundown, Life and Business. I've been away for a couple of weeks, as I've been wont to do lately, but it's for a good reason. Today I'm starting something new to coincide with my weekly-ish newsletter. It's a podcast, a podcast that features me reading off these letters to you. I may go off on many tangents in my audio version, but I'll try my best to keep it close to the original intent. I rarely stick to the script, so we'll see how good I am at staying on topic. But it'll be an exciting learning process for me nonetheless. I hope you enjoy it. Mental crutches. I see myself as a noob, a rookie, and I don't hesitate to tell everyone that I am new to this, gestures broadly. I was challenged recently by a colleague whom I admire and aspire to emulate to consider what he sees. He sees me as an expert, not as a noob like I do. I tell myself this mentality is a bit of imposter syndrome mixed with lacking life's experiences. He said it's more like a crutch. I'm using my newness as a shield to defend myself from discomfort. I have value already. I'm just hiding it because I don't want to face criticism or pressure. I want the benefits of being a noob while still trying to offer expert advice and opinion. He's totally right. I'm being safe. I'm protecting myself with the facts of my environment instead of being being willing to fully step up to the plate. I need to be better. The law of diminishing marginal utility. Marginal utility is the added satisfaction a consumer gets from having one more unit of a good or service. The law of diminishing marginal utility states that the amount of added satisfaction that we receive from that good or service declines as its available supply increases. This concept is easily explained within the context of food. Let's imagine you have one Oreo. Not sponsored. I just like them a lot. How much joy does that one Oreo bring you? What about two Oreos? How much joy does that bring you? Now, how many Oreos are too many? I guarantee there's a specific number where things turn ugly for you. From an economic perspective, what we want to do with this concept of marginal utility And the law of diminishing marginal utility is to find the perfect number of units of Oreos that we'd pay the most money for and makes us the most satisfied. Obviously, this number is nearly impossible to find for ourselves, let alone for an entire populace. Additionally, pricing and satisfaction also differ dramatically between various population demographics, which further complicates this issue. The greatest flaw of the economists as a profession is their inability to separate the real world from their magical world of unicorns and butterflies. This is why, even in capitalism, there are people who are abused and people who do the abuse. Bring me the Heinz. My college mentor has imparted with me many valuable lessons and nuggets of wisdom that I endeavor to share. Here's one lesson that he learned during his time at UPS. It is called the Heinz Management Story. Mr. Heinz, the owner of Heinz Lumber Company, recently had to fill a top executive position. 
two of his managers with equal experience, Bob and Rob, were considered, but the choice ultimately went to Rob, whose only notable difference was that he had fewer years with the company compared to Bob. Upon learning that he did not get the promotion, Bob was confused and disappointed. So he went to Mr. Hines' office to ask him why he wasn't the one selected. Instead of answering him, Mr. Hines asked Bob if any lumber had come in. Bob said he would check, and a few minutes later reported that a carload had arrived that morning. Mr. Hines then wanted to know the type of lumber. Again, after checking, Bob told him it was number three pine. Mr. Hines then asked how many board feet were in the order. Again, leaving the room to check, he returned shortly with the answer, 2,000 board feet. This type of questioning went on for over an hour until finally Mr. Hines had had enough and asked the man to sit in the next room, leaving the door ajar so he could still hear. Mr. Hines then called Rob and asked him if any lumber had arrived. Rob said he would check, and in a half an hour, which was longer than it took Bob to get the first answer, but shorter than all of Bob's searching combined, he returned with the following answer. A carload of number three pine has come into the track three at 6.30 a.m. and totaled 2,000 board feet. The lumber was unloaded by noon and stored in warehouse D. Order number 1503 for the Carter Construction Company and its total value was $18,750. Mr. Hines thanked Rob and said he could go. After Rob left, Mr. Hines called in Bob. Bob just shook his head in approval of the decision, thanked Mr. Hines, and left. The lesson from this story is that leadership is made up of the following building blocks. Number one, exhibiting initiative and enduring tenacity. Number two, being thoroughly prepared, willing to go above and beyond what's expected. Number three, being willing to communicate freely. And number four, owning your mistakes. Integrity is the key to creating personal authority. Beating the market. If you're an investor in the stock market, you probably have heard financial advisors, brokers, and your fellow peers talk about beating the market. Maybe you've even thought that you could beat the market too. And maybe you are, if you just joined during the March 2020 dip. But is that sustainable? Can you consistently beat the market over the long term? The S&P Dow Jones indices often report how actively managed mutual funds perform compared to the S&P 500 index. The report referenced here was published in April of 2020 and included data from the full year of 2019. According to this report supplied by stockanalysis.com, link in the newsletter, 88.99% of large cap U.S. funds have underperformed the S&P 500 index over 10 years. That's nearly 9 out of 10 active managers in these large-cap U.S. funds who buy and sell stocks for a living, underperforming against the S&P 500. Are you going to be able to do any better? Spoiler, you're not. Not unless you're extremely lucky or extremely criminal. But it's a good thing to know that the S&P 500 is such a strong index. You can put your faith in that basket. Finding an ETF 
like Vanguard's VOO that tracks the S&P 500 with very small fees will give you moderate risk exposure in the short to mid terms, but promises pretty significant returns given longer time horizons that have historically beaten most active investors. So should I just invest in the S&P 500 then? It depends. In general, yes, the S&P 500 has proven very valuable for most investors. However, like everything, there are up and down periods that should be considered. You can't time the market, but you can make some determinations based on the current circumstances that may lead you to a different outcome. What are some of those determinations? Fundamentals and technicals. When assessing market activity, there are two types of analysis. Fundamental analysis focuses on the merits and metrics of the business slash sector slash asset in question. Technical analysis focuses on price action within the applicable marketplace. These two analyses can guide you towards more specific actions given your interests, inclinations, and time frame. It's worth knowing that technical analysis usually works better for the short-term time frames, while fundamentals matter more over the longer term. Dollar Cost Averaging DCA over a long period of time, DCA is a wonderful tactic that allows you to participate in the various time frames of this quarter, this year, and this decade all at the same time. It's a great way to play in multiple different arenas and gradually adjust to the market while avoiding overexposure by jumping in gradually instead of all at once. You'll buy less when the price is high, but you'll buy more when the price is low. Stock Picking I don't suggest doing this with the vast majority of your investable assets, but it can be very beneficial to participate with direct ownership of various company stocks that you believe in or are excited about. Indices trim off a lot of risk, but that also means they absorb a lot of the upside. Because an index is a basket of stocks, there are some businesses that will thrive and others that will flounder, and they absorb each other's gains and losses accordingly. This is great for wealth preservation, but not so much for wealth creation. This month in news, May 2021. In a new monthly series, I wanted to share some of the biggest news stories that hit my radar and my thoughts about them. Shootings. As of May 10th, 2021, we've seen nearly 200 mass shootings in America. The Second Amendment of the United States Constitution reads, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Clearly, we need to update regulations to match the new environment we live in where mass shootings are so common that no one seems to bat an eye. COVID-19. America appears to have put COVID-19 in the rearview mirror. Whatever remains will now be treated as the new normal rather than a national crisis. There's still a lot we don't know, and there's a lot of emotion that's playing into this global event that will remain for some time. We will only know with hindsight how these emotions and unknown unknowns impact the trended course of humanity. We could have done better, and we also could have done worse. The Israel-Palestine Conflict to be honest, I didn't know much about the history of this conflict be between Israel and Palestine until the 11 days skirmish caused by the forceful eviction of six Palestinian families from their homes. The crisis was triggered on the 6th of May when Palestinians began protests in East Jerusalem over the anticipated decision of the Supreme Court of Israel on the eviction of these six families. 
Under international law, the UN, the area effectively annexed by Israel is a part of the Palestinian territories that Israel currently holds under occupation. <clears throat> the UN estimated at the end of the 11-day crisis that Israel had demolished 94 buildings in Gaza, comprising well over 400 housing and commercial units. Additionally, at least 254 Palestinians, including 66 children, were killed in Gaza, while 13 people were killed, including one child in Israel. The Gaza Ministry of Health reported that more than 1,900 Palestinians were injured, and as of the 12th of May, Israel reported at least 200 injured Israelis. Humans often gate subjugate one another for a myriad of reasons, and then over time the balance shifts from the subjugated to become the overlords, and vice versa. We've been doing this for all of recorded history, and I am left wondering about the future of humanity. I realize that as a white, straight, Christian-oriented, but not devout man, my place in this has been overly privileged from the start. I don't know what to think about this crisis. I just know it's sad and, in my opinion, preventable. Inflation deflation. I'm inclined to believe that the concept of inflation is and always was transitory. Here's a breakdown of what inflation actually means and why it's not something to be too concerned about if you're effectively long-term oriented. Inflation occurs when one or more factors combine to drive prices higher. Often, wage pressures raise prices for goods and services, filtering into the general economy. Sometimes, the combination of a weakening dollar and rising commodity prices send input costs higher, which kicks off an inflationary spiral. Third, there are times when the cost of capital becomes so cheap, it sends anything priced in dollars or debt off into upward spirals. But inflation is not inevitable. There are numerous countervailing forces that have been at work for the last 50 years. The three big deflation drivers are technology, which creates massive economies of scale, robotics, which effectively creates more physical goods at lower prices, and globalization, which sends work to lower cost regions, making goods and services less expensive overall. To put this into context, inflation is periodic driven by specific events, while deflation is consistent, the background state of the modern economy. We had about a year where demand dried up and prices fell for the products and services that made up the old normal. People tightened their belts, had to stay home, shifted to software consumption, and left the physical world behind, except for consumer staples. As America finally got its act together and started making strides towards COVID-19's resolution, we saw demand rise and supply constraints reveal themselves. This makes perfect sense, given the fact that demand was significantly lower only a few months prior, and for many months consistently, and businesses had to liquidate their inventory and lay workers off to stay afloat. They canceled relationships with their suppliers, subcontractors, and other third-party vendors, They closed offices and changed processes to reduce costs. They even cut prices to attract the remaining and relatively limited buyers. Many of them just went flat out of business. The economies of scale, as a result, have broken. We're now experiencing real costs of the things we've spent decades using inefficiently. 
it's not any single policy that's causing this transitory inflation period. It's not the president of the United States. It's not other countries or their populace. It's not immigrants. It's a million little things that brought us to where we are now, prime among them being the circumstances in which we find ourselves. It's just as simple as that. One final thing. Please let me know if you listened to slash enjoyed the podcast. Thank you very much. And I'll see you or you'll hear from me next week.